Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your time, Mr. Maher Al-Kabi, advisor to the chairman of Al-Sarkal Group. I appreciate uh, the kindness of appearing with us here on this uh, virtual call. I feel very excited about discussing a number of aspects with you. You have been a trusted advisor to many families, inclusive of Al-Sarkal family, and you have uh, a lot of history, and I'd love that if you'd kindly share some of your practical uh, history when it comes to the fields that you've worked with and how did you end up to be an advisor to family businesses. Uh, hopefully after that we get a briefing from you, we'll be covering some aspects when it comes to non-family members managers, uh, some academic coverage, and then I would hope to hear from you on your personal experience in conducting such uh, activities with family businesses. So how about we start with a bit of a profile of you, uh, Mr. Maher, and, and your experience with the Sarkal family and a bit of a summary on a Sarkal family uh, history, current activities, and their future outlook. Sure. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Adil, for inviting me. And I think it's an interesting thing that you're starting and launching something like this. Uh, I hope that this would definitely benefit a wider audience in the future. And of course, we'll be refining this as we were discussing as well off the call. Uh, to start about myself, um, I start, I'm actually a software engineer. Um, I started programming at, as early as when I was nine years old, when, program, when computers are very primitive at that point of time. Uh, however, when I graduated, uh, in my mind was always to join, not to be a programmer, but to be a business, leading a business role. And it uh, lasted only one year when I was softly developing software for companies. And later on, I joined banking, that was Citibank. Uh, stayed there for 15 years, roughly covering uh, locally, regionally, uh, various roles. City is always put you to, to the sea and make you swim. So it's a very learning, good background in terms, it's an institution, it's a university by itself. Uh, and there's a cliche over there and saying goes in the banking industry, once you're a city banker, you're always a city banker. So did we say city banker or next city banker? So wherever you go in any banking industry, you'll find always next city banker. So managed roles like business from retail, corporate, was a chief operating officer, chief risk officer, uh, managed the IT, um, managed even the treasury function. So that was covered all. Uh, moved on to another bank called Dubai Bank because I had the passion to move to Islamic banking from religious beliefs which was to Dubai Bank. Over there, I was assigned as a chief risk officer. Uh, to cut the long story short, from 2008 to 2012, the bank was acquired by Emirates MBD, where I, sp I spent my latter part over there at Emirates MBD till about 2020 January. Over there, I was looking after the Islamic banking for the regional as a group head. Um, I had a very kind manager who came in, as a, who was a CEO from Standard Chartered who joined 2014. And he asked me even to head the group chief of, uh, operating officer for the wholesale banking. So I double hatted that function. And uh, there we started growing the portfolio, put the right policy governance systems in place uh, and we moved on. Uh, later on decided to do something of my own. Uh, Ahmed Sarkal, who's the chairman of Sarkal Group uh, is a very dear friend, a brother whom I know very well. Uh, of course, my brother works as a group managing director over there. Uh, and he was always asking me even before that, why don't you come and establish for us the governance uh, and put up something that you know all the corporate people have. And this is where I started with them. And that was the journey, starting with them. 
Uh, I'd like to give a bit background about the Sirkal family in the coming few minutes. Um, a Sirkal family comes from a tribal a tribes called Al Ali. Uh, so a, the a Sirkal, then they're known by a Sirkal, but their actually name is family name is Al Ali. And the word a Sirkal actually also derived from a Sirkar, which is ending with an R, which is given to by the Britishers to the governance uh, to the government, basically called a government called Sirkar in India. So when the name came into the Gulf, the, the transition happened between Sarkar to a Sarkal. So there are actually got to the L. Uh, the family itself has been very instrumental in terms of playing a political role in the, uh, in the, core, in the coastal over here and the Gulf overall. And apart from many instrumental businesses that they have established uh, as early on. So starting as early on in 1852, they were the native agents between the rulers of the UAE and Oman and the British government uh, at that point of time. So uh, native government actually rules, were, uh, their roles which they played, they made sure that treaties which were there between the government uh, uh, of the UK government, the Britishers at that point of time, and UAE rulers and the Gulf is to, to monitor these treaties and making sure they're getting implemented. They were also tracking the trafficking of arms and slavery. Uh, they were involved in solving any disputes if there were arises and issues arises that they were actually making sure that, that happens. And later on, they were also granting per traveling permits, people coming in, coming out. So this is how strong the family was there. And they were actually working as native agents for about as a political role for over 70 years. Uh, so they were instrumental in making sure that happens. And during this process, the many family members who came in starting this thing in 1852, they actually were recipient of many awards. So the first member who actually took over the role was uh, Yaqub bin Bashir bin Hassan al-Sirkal. Uh, and then he stayed for the, in, in the role till he passed away in 1880. Then his brother succeeded him. Uh, then another gentleman succeeded him, which is uh, Abdurrahman al-Sirkal. Uh, who was actually awarded by the British government the Khan Bahadur Award, title of that, which is a very prestigious award. And later on, his son succeeded him, which is uh, Isa bin uh, Abdul Latif al-Sarkal. And this name is good to remember because his brother founded uh, the Nasr bin Abdul Sarkal in the modern way of it in 1947. So Isa uh, bin Abdul Latif al was also awarded the title of Khan Sahib, then later on Khan Bahadur. Then he also got a medal and award by the King uh, George V uh, award, the, what do you call it, uh, Silver Jubilee. He was also recipient of the OBE award, the Order of British, uh, British Empire. He was the first to bring the first automobile in UAE in 1924, which is the 14. We have a classical showroom of all the classic cars uh, in the Sarkal family. I'm not sure if you've been through, quite a lot of people pass through and see these classic cars over there. And that Ford Model T is still there in the showroom, the first vehicle which came to UAE. And he was the first Oh, I, I, I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, I, I, would, I would love to invite you over to come and see all the classic cars we have. There are, some of them are very old vintages, by the way. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And he was also, uh, he was the first guy also to bring uh, the, the steamboats. Uh, we used to call it in, we call it in uh, what do you call local language, El Stima. Okay. So he was instrumental to that thing. When the group were established in 1947, when Nasr bin Abdul Latif Sirkal, uh, what he called, started it, he was born in 1917. Uh, uh, he held many positions. He was a meteorologist in the Sharjah, what he called, army. 
um, uh, what do you call it, the Armed Air Forces, Royal Air Forces at that point of time. Uh, he actually worked also in the Golden Valley in the mining company in the island of Abu, Abu Musa. And he, uh, of course, uh, many businesses he managed. He managed the, the trading business in UAE, the pearl business in UAE before, uh, many equipment he brought in terms of the generators. And I wanted to share a few slides so we can see pictorially if that's okay uh, to see this. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. That, that's lovely. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just put these slides up. Uh, okay. There you go. Uh, this is Nasser bin Abdulaziz Sarkal. As you can see, he's been a very prominent figure. Someone he met all the royal families over here with the late Sheikh Zaid uh, and also Sheikh Mohammed Rashid Maktoum. Um, I will jump into the next generation and then come and see what he has established and how he was uh, instrumental in establishing a lot of key strategic uh, initiatives and businesses in UAE. Uh, of course, uh, when he passed away, Nasser bin Sarkal. His son, uh, the chairman, uh, which is current chairman, Isa bin Abdullah Sarkal, is alive, alhamdulillah, and he has the third generation, which is uh, the Abdullah Sarkal, and you have Ahmed Sarkal, who's the current chairman of uh, Sarkal Group, and then you have Abdul Munam Sarkal, the other brother, and the fourth brother, Ya'qub Sarkal. Uh, going back in history, what Nasser has done, um, I think he was, uh, he was the first person to bring a second bank in Sharjah, uh, to bring the to to break the monopoly of the banking sector at that point of time by the British Imperial Bank, so I'm also trying to see that uh, what they have done, and that was in somewhere in um, I would say uh, 1961. Um, no, actually, not 1961, 1955. Uh, he was the first person to bring the generator concept, and if I can't go to the histories of what he has was able to do. If you look at the companies, when he established in 1947, the first thing he did, he was in tire businesses. So he took the agencies and was the sole distributor of Bridgestone. That was 1958. Uh, of course, they were the founder and the current shareholder and the chairman of the board for the Pepsi in 1959, as, as old as that goes. Uh, he bought the first tele telephone and through which the Itisalat was established. He was actually instrumental in finding the Itisalat in 1960, which many people don't know about that. Uh, he was also the founding member, uh, founding member of Diwa in 1961. Uh, he brought the first generator for his house, and then he brought the generators uh, for the families, uh, and he supplied the generator to them. And then he was behind establishing the Diwa. He was on the he was the vice chairman and board member for for that uh, institution. He started the Amazing. first bank. Started the first bank in Dubai, which was National Bank of Dubai, which later on got merged with the Emirates International Bank and formed the Emirates MBD currently known. They are currently the founding member and also the current shareholders uh, that the bank started in 1963. And then they, after establishment of Diwa, he also founded the Siwa, the Sharjah, what do you call electricity and water department in 1963 also in Sharjah. So he actually, uh, and he was the board member of course for that. Uh, established another bank, founding member of Commercial Bank of Dubai, still exists, one of the old banks, 1969. They started the Dubai Insurance Company in 1970, uh, what do you call current share, currently a shareholders and board member as well. Uh, of course, they established Isha Travels in 1979, and also the founding member for Beit Khair, 1989, and sort of all the other company games. Blue was one of the oldest, uh, oldest company in the, what do you call, blue services, they offer, offer soft services, for cleaning services, so, you know, your kitchen docks, the hotels, industry, stuff like that, quite a lot of it. 
uh, and then established the Sirkal Asriyan in 1926. I'll just zoom out to the next section. Um, Sirkal properties, of course, started in 2001. Unlike many other family members, they have uh, properties are, are the main thing, but of, of course, this has been there as well, but other instrumental businesses were there. Sirkal Avenue, which is, um, I think, uh, a going place to a lot of people. It's a very unique concept whereby uh, this used to be um, what he called storehouses over there has been converted to a lot of establishments where people have restaurants, shops, many, many happening places. This is the right time actually even to go and visit because of the nice weather, because you can go out with your family. Yeah, it's a beautiful space, beautiful space, very artistic. Think, absolutely. And very, very creative, creative and innovative. Yeah. You would see that the art is also embedded in the family. Uh, so they you know because of this thing, they, they have established an art gallery in 2013. But this is also coming from the perspective, because many of the Sirkal families were actually even poems. And they, write, they were writing poems. Even the, the current chairman, Isa bin Abdul Sirkal, he actually writes a lot of poems. Very nice one. I happened to read one of them, which was published in one of the newspapers, Imarat uh, al-Yom. And he was talking about um, uh, how to make buildings which is of Chinese style. So for some reason that did not go through. So he wrote a very beautiful poems on, 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 on that aspect as well. I, I, don't get, I don't hold of it, but I will try to search for that. Uh, very, one very, very innovative idea that we have established and which is very instrumental for the country and the city, which is this environmental plant that we have, which was started in 2007. Now, many of the uh, municipal waste that we go today for the food establishment, particularly the hotels and the restaurants, all the fat and oil and grease today uh, earlier used to go to the municipal lines and there, a lot of clogging used to happen. Now we know in Western walls, they have this there where you have a grease trap installed, a company will come and clean it and they will take this waste and then we'll take it to a plant and they will recycle them. Now this was not existing in, in UAE. So the, the, for the family, Ahmed Sirkal, who's the chairman of Sirkal Group, went to the municipality as early on 2006 so he started working on regulation to making sure that this is supposed to be there and how to save the city from the millions of dollars they used to spend on unclogging the municipal line, because that has to be sometimes the line has to be broken, digging has to happen, and the lines could be in the roads and many other places. So this is a plant which is one of a kind in the middle, entire Middle East. So even our neighboring countries, other countries in the Middle East do not have it. And we'll talk about what are the, we're talking, when we talk about the expansion plan, we'll come to that thing. And then in 2007, an Amaraf plant was established at Green Mountain. There are three plants in, UAE, in Dubai today, which actually takes the waste and recycle the waste. So the, one of them is ours, and there are two other partners as well as there. And Glass Factory is there. Uh, a United Trans, which was established in 2008, another unique concept. Today, you see all the metros. We were the first people to actually took the 10 years uh, on the OEM of the United Trans, where all the metros maintenance were carried out by us. Uh, and we also we also won the award to supply the locomotive and the wagon and the passenger trains for Etihad Rail for Abu Dhabi. So we are the sole agent for that. Uh, we also won the OEM, the maintenance for that as well for Abu Dhabi uh, for Abu Dhabi government. Very promising. Very promising. Uh, moving on, uh, we have established the Dubai Stars 2015, which is a sport arena that we have in Al Khawanij. Uh, art gallery I spoke about in the studio in Muscat in 2013. Uh, another uh, biofuel, another unique concept from the environmental friendly establishment in 2018 of biofuel. Uh, of course, it's going to be operational. The plant is still getting uh, a, what do you call, I would say, constructed. It should be operated by this 
second quarter of this year, hopefully, inshallah, if not earlier. So this is basically all the used cooking oils today we have from the hotel industries and restaurants. They'll be used and converted to biodiesel, which will run to your plant, uh, your, what do you call, your uh, vehicles, large vehicles, and also planes. Adnok already signed the deal uh, in making sure all the UCO's used cooking oils are actually used for their planes in the future as well. And uh, 2019 was the establishment of a Sarkal uh, Art Vertical Foundation and then Heritage Express, which is a very unique concept, which is uh, all the tourists which comes to Dubai today, we do have an, what do you call a tour guide, which takes them and make them take them to all the tourist places in, in Dubai, make them understand how tourists work. There is also, a, uh, they take them to a place, an heritage place, where also uh, given a background of our culture, UAE culture, what UAE and how it evolved and what is it today. And they also taste the uh, authentic uh, local food to get to know the, and live the experience as well. So this is uh, overall the, what the, uh, the establishment is, the foundation history. Uh, they're into four, what do you call, um, countries, UAE, Amman, Bahrain, and Qatar. Uh, there are 820 employees. Uh, if we talk, of, of course, uh, as a group, a recipient of many awards by all the dignities of many things we've done. And if we to move forward, what do we want to do in the future? Uh, very so, much. So if you allow me, uh, uh, Mr. Mahar, so currently um, at this point, I mean, first of all, it's such an impressive uh, history for the family, and I mean, as a family, it's, it's a well-known family, and 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 their impact on a the context they are in has historically been uh, extremely uh, positive, and continues to be very, very, very positive. This is this is exactly why it's such a an, an initiative of of having these kind of discussions are very dear to me because. Families in general contribute so much to the economies they serve and so much to the societies they serve. And such stories uh, need to be delivered to, to the wider audience. I mean, I did not know half of what you've said. I've seen a few uh, specific projects that I know that the Asarkar family were behind, but to have it presented in such a way is mesmerizing. I mean, I've been neighbors to one of the Asarkal uh, family houses. And we've been you know, together for, for a long time. I still didn't know. So this is quite mesmerizing. Before we get into the future, if you would kindly help me just to identify, and I know their, their scope of uh, activities are really, really wide, but how would you summarize it today? Uh, I would believe they are in real estate, they are in the financial sector. I understand they are in waste management. Uh, what else, if you could help me uh, a bit, well, and to, to like summarize what they are in today? Uh, they're also into investments, uh, and that's something was also established uh, to make sure how do we transition over there, uh, where okay. we can do come recurring investments, uh, dividends are coming in from these investments. Uh, it could be okay. something like a post seed round or other well-established okay. investments that we have today, whether locally or even internationally. So, so are you saying they are moving, trying to slowly but steadily move away from operating businesses into becoming more of an investment house, or do they put equal weight in in between operating businesses as well as investing and then becoming pure investors? Right. Uh, I wouldn't think we are transitioning to be uh, uh, fully investors. 
but I think we're trying to bring some of the investor part of it, some of those industries to the uh, portfolio. So it's more from diversification perspective, not solely relying on whatever we have built because those are yielding fruits today. Like for example, one of the biggest agencies that we have today, which is the Bridgestone. Uh, it is the largest one we have in the entire UAE. Uh, and many other the, the, the building the building itself is titled as Farqa. It's such a beautiful building they have in Dubai, yeah. yeah? The Bridgestone yes, building. It's amazing. And I believe the Ford uh, team order that you're mentioning is seated there with it. Is it there? It, it is there. So I, I would really invite you amazing. to have time. So I'll take you through all the classical cars it's, over here. And uh, it's such a beautiful building. Yeah, yeah it's such a beautiful building. Yeah, yeah. There is a replica of the same building, exactly the same on the opposite road, by the way, but it's hidden between buildings. It's on the main road. That's okay. Well. Okay, okay, okay. I, I, I'll pay attention, definitely. Interesting. I'll take it. I'll take your invite, by the way. Sure. I will. I'll get it coordinated, definitely. Fantastic. So, so moving from now and into the future, what do you think the family is seeking? What's so, their vision? Uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, things which is also embedded in the culture of the family is environmental, and it, it ties in very well with the word actually transitioning to. So if you speak to any of the investment houses, the word ESG uh, and SDGs will actually become a mandate. So a lot of investors who want to invest, the first thing they'll ask now about, okay, what are you doing for the environment? Is these investments are related and friendly to the environment or not? But as you saw the environmental plant that we have started in 2007, uh, this is emanating from the self-realization that you know we ought to do something for the environment and it's very important and the second plan that we're going to be hopefully operating this year also how do we make sure that it's environment the the and it's actually tying in very well to the buzzing word which is happening nowadays the circular economy how do you produce that we have today they go back and circle and can be reused now many people actually misses the concept of circle economy they come into the second stage and making them using it but what we're trying to do is, how do we, the product itself that we have today, actually full recyclable? So the second plan we talk about today, the, the oil that which will be used for cooking by the establishment, they'll be used and recycled to back to the environment for them to be used in very different things. So the key thing is how do we expand this concept, not locally, but also regionally. Of course, locally within the Emirates of uh, city of Dubai, uh, city of Sharjah, city of Babali and the Northern Emirates. And regionally, we want to establish the similar plant in Bahrain. We want a similar plant in, uh, in, uh, in, in Saudi, which is the biggest market over here. We're already in advanced talk. We have an MOU being signed already. Uh, however, COVID-2020 did not make it happen and actually dragged to 21. So we're probably making a visit to visit the minister to, to sign a contract over there. Uh, Saudi has been already worked on the plan over there. We do have established a company over there and we will go there and establish a plant as the, what do you call the, COVID situation eases out as well. Fantastic. And I think uh, I used to run also a, a waste management uh, and recycling facility. And and oil price should, the rise of oil price where, where it is today should help, I believe. Would you agree? Uh, definitely. Uh, I think if we, if we would have asked this question 15 years ago, uh, there was a lot of doubts in people's mind. And yes. but that doubt is actually evading slowly, slowly. Uh, I think the reason is because now the people and investors are becoming very climate conscious, to be honest with you. Uh, okay. And they would know that. And it is, and, and it is financially viable. And it is a, a sustainable uh, investment. Because Absolutely. basically, if you get these uh, and, and the technologies allow for converting them into, in, into uh, 
into biodiesel or converting into methane or, or, or any other usable form of energy at a financially interesting rate equal or, or cheaper than current oil prices, it works, it works financially. So you are A, making money and you're doing the environment good. And that's a beautiful model. Uh, would, you, would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, and as the, the new one becomes a mainstream, you're actually, the technology is helping in making the cost very cost effective. And that's why it is easier now to move in, whether it's uh, anything what's to do with the solar, the batteries and so forth. So the, the rapid now changes and improvement in technology, making it happen faster. I agree. Uh, so so environmental, uh, environmental is something that is definitely in the agenda. Sure. Uh, FinTech and health tech is also in agenda. Anything to do with digital world? Uh, the whole world is Fantastic. moving over there. We're trying to also move internally to do digitize our processes from digitalization to so, digitization. So is that in investing in startups in these fields or creating your own ecosystem and your own offerings or a mix of that? Uh, currently, uh, it is first of all to look at the startups. Uh, however, so what we've done to make sure that this is uh, governed properly, we created an investment committee. The investment charter is there. We put in the right uh, the committee members over there. We allocated what funds need to go to what sectors. So we try to be within those main framework. So it's not, okay, what we like and what we do. No, it's properly done. So whether it meets the, what you call investment criteria for this sector, then we actually go and invest. So when it comes to FinTech, there is a fund allocated for that thing. How much are we going to be investing? Is it a seed round that we invest? How much for the seed round? If it's a series A's, how much we invest and so forth. Impressive, impressive. So we see that uh, environmental, fintech and health. Anything else? Uh, you think they say, are? Yeah, I think these are the two prominent uh, sectors which are taking, I would say, occupying the mind and the hearts and the action. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Mr. Mal. I would love to cover a bit on the subject on non-family managers. And since you are an family advisor, it, I see it very relevant. And I would love to hear from you your own experience. I just want to, before getting into your own experience, dealing with family offices uh, as a non-family member, uh, I just highlight a few uh, aspects of the subject from an academic point of view. Uh, as you might be aware, uh, Mr. Maher, I mean, academically, statistically, it hasn't been clearly identified uh, that businesses run by family members versus businesses that are not or, or that are run by non-family managers have clear financial distinguishments if you look at, at it from a statistical point of view and especially on listed companies but i would also want to highlight few papers that came recently uh, just explaining recent developments and certain views as with regards to non-family members. To, to start the whole thing, I just want to uh, give out one definition of what a, a non-family manager is. Uh, according to Klein and Bell's research paper published in 2007, which is cited frequently, non-family managers, shortened as NFMs, are managers who do not have a blood, marital, or adoptive relationship with the owner family. 
This is a common definition that goes around. A PwC research shows that between 2015 and 2019, the revenue of family businesses managed by external executives grew by 7% on average, while those managed by members of the owner family grew only by 4.9%. Now, uh, reading through that with a pinch of salt, it might have some level of indication. A 2021 paper, a recent one, by Fang, Madison and other co-authors, those are iconic researchers in the field, highlights how family firms with below average performance significantly benefit from employing non-family managers. Whereas family firms with above average performance do not experience the same benefits. Interesting. The family business survey in 2016 by PwC revealed that 73% of family firms looking to grow aggressively have non-family executives or have none have, have no family non-executives in the business, indicating that there is a gap. And families need to be aware of benefits of non-family executives being involved. Or let's try to use the terminology non-family managers in, in the context of this, of this call. So, so covering it academically with a pinch of salt, I wanted to hear from you, your own experience being involved as non-family manager and or advisor and how did you you know find that experience would love to hear from you sure um, i'll actually go back to the definition that you have mentioned and why the, the the different reports have different things happening uh i think one of the things researchers have missed to do is the test groups and making sure the test groups and actual ones are actually compared together uh, and to, to fast forward, that's why you have 91% of S&P 500 listed companies have actually independent board members, fully independent board members. Of them, three only companies have completely independent board members, which are the three companies, if I recall, it's McDonald's, um, Kraft, uh, the third one, I, I don't remember them, but the three companies in the S&P 500. But the challenge is, is not only having an independent board member as say, or because there are two, two levels of it. One is the board membership. And then when you have the, the CEO who's running the company or the MDs running the company. Now, you, you may have one of the others, but honestly speaking, it really matters a lot for a company to see differently if you have both actually embedded there. But of course, that, that's all about the size of the business. As the size of the business increases and you bring and introduce the independence, this is where you'll be able to see the traction because of the governance they bring up about and to see, then it will be right to measure to see whether they have been yielding high results in terms of revenue or not. But if you, let's say, take an example, if you employ um, just a CEO or an MD for the company who may not, but they don't have the, you don't have the corporate culture and a structure and governance to solve the disputes that the what board member dictates, which are our family members, the, the MD and the CEO may not have the enough power to uh, what do you call go against or actually uh, discuss a different area. From my perspective, interesting. Uh, very yeah, interesting. So from, so from my perspective, what I see, uh, and I, that is one of the key factor, which I think probably you and everybody else will call it, I used to call it 
the torch holder of the family is one person who's holding the torch. It's important that the torch holder, the chairman of the company, he knows he has the will and need and desire and the right objective of bringing independent members. If that is not there, it's not going to happen because your other board members, which is one of the challenging factors, why should we have them? So I personally, Ahmed, it's, uh, and it's a dear brother and friend for a long time. So I, no matter how much I say it would be less, but he has the vision, a very forward looking, that he wanted to make sure that there is a, a good independence governance created for, for the group he has today. And how does it transform to the second and third generation? We all know that the only 40%, of course, maybe these are global statistics, like in the US, 40% only makes the second generation. The third generation is 13%, 3% of the third generation. We only know the success stories, but we don't get to hear about those family businesses where actually got demised. They're not there anymore. Why? Because of various reasons. So for, for ourselves, when we were mandated to look at these things by the chairman, it was how to establish the board, put the governance. How do we make sure that the decision-making is more of uh, in a structured manner rather than saying it, I like that or I dislike that. There is a code book that we refer to, which guide us not to restrict us because we still have our own views on how to bring an expert mind who have looked at these things from his past. What is the right thing work? So bringing the corporate culture and slowly, slowly embedded. Now, it's important to make sure that when we take on this journey, we don't implement everything one go, because then it will be all about breaking the people. But it's not about breaking, it's making, making them part of the journey. So one of the things we did, and we said, this is what we want to be in five years time, for example. But how, what are the milestones and the phases or epics that we want to follow? And how do we make sure everybody understands those things? So we took really baby steps, just to make sure well, that we slowly- what I call it democracy. Families are democracies. You have to massage them into an idea, definitely. Absolutely, I agree with you. absolutely, absolutely. But luckily speaking, I think we do have, I mean, Ahmed has very good board members, mashallah, and he has- uh, and, 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 and would you highlight, uh, I mean, your views on what is the criteria for somebody like uh, Ahmed, Bonasar uh, on, you know, headhunting those non-execs? What what goes into his mind when he picks the individuals? Uh, I think because he's very independent and forward-looking person. Uh, okay. he's, he understands this very well because he's also lived this culture with his grandfather. He actually worked okay. with his grandfather, Nasr al Sarkar, for a very long time, since he was 18 years old. So, okay. and, he's, he, and he's also lived the corporate culture. He's the chairman of Pepsi today. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so he, he understand the culture very well. He understand what need to be done, but he also understand how and what are the right timings to make sure there is no okay. disturbance to the ship as well. Beautiful. And does he allocate these kind of uh, non-family advisors and managers uh, on, onto different levels within the organization? Does he like create boards and committees? And does, it, does he take it usually in that fashion? Or is it mainly at the board level? Okay. It's a very good question. Uh, as I said, we, when we implement something, we need to make sure that we do it in a phases that we people can take it and we can digest it. So the first thing we did is to work on the board membership. What are the TOR terms of references for the board? 
what are the duties and responsibilities, and making sure that is getting ingrained. The next steps would be the other board committees that need to take, because we also don't want to increase expenses. And at the same time, mm -hmm. we also want to make sure that people align. The reason why Dubai is successful very well and why UAE is successful is all about alignment between the leaders and the one down and second down and third down. And that's why we, our model has been very, very successful and taught globally. Hassan Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, Mohammed bin Zayed have done a fantastic job in making sure that they have the right people among themselves. Ahmed Bunasar is the same, same of a kind. He's also embracing these yeah. changes, but making people accounted for. So we're taking those steps to make it happen. So in the companies yeah. as well, we, uh, alhamdulillah, have independent MDs. Uh, none of the family members are leading the, uh, what do you call the verticals of companies. So they're independently ran, which is amazing because that brings perspective of people from different backgrounds, different experiences. And this is how we are growing the businesses then. Fantastic. And, and does he accommodate or uh, rotate them? like different expertise at different times, depending on the scope or, and, and how often those rotations happen. Is there, is there any defined way or is it uh, as and when needed? Okay, uh, uh, spot on, to be honest with you. We're working on a program, how do we rotate people? Because from my past experiences, we always rotated uh, individuals and in organizations to learn something new and bring a new mindset and fresh minds as well. So we've not done that, I would say holistically as a program, uh, there were a few rotation happened, of course, individually at senior level and certain levels, uh, or restructuring has happened, which, which uh, forced the rotation to happen. But we will actually develop that as a program uh, for rotation to happen as well. Beautiful. You know, you know I, I'm also a board member of a number of companies. And, and this is currently a challenge that I am facing. And reason why the world has changed so fast and it's changing so fast so dramatically, even when it comes to way of thinking. Yeah, we get so outdated so fast. And I see that in my kids. I mean, their language is so different than mine already. And I'm not that old. I'm old, but not that old. And uh, it's mesmerizing how outdated individuals can be unless they keep track. And uh, yeah, I acknowledge that. I, I acknowledge that. So, um, any last words, uh, Mr. Maher, on what would you advise families when it comes to the use of non-family managers and advisors? Yeah, sure. I think um, it is important to learn from other families' experiences, what other families have gone through. Uh, as I said earlier, we only see the good stories, but sometimes we don't understand those businesses, why they were not successful. We only hear hearsays. So it's very important that we, the, when the business is growing, because you know one of the fear the businesses have is how do I lose control if I bring somebody from outside? But I think the family businesses need to understand how to transition from being owner manager to owner investors. So they, for the day-to-day -day things, they should bring somebody who run the businesses and also to create independence and for this actually to move on to the next and third generation, there should be a code book developed and that can happen by you bringing not only consulting a consultant, but also bringing early on independent, uh, what do you call board membership, which will help you to transition over there and reduce the conflicts going forward. Uh, because you say something very important when I join you other things. Uh, it's also important to tell the, uh, the members, the family members, this wealth, this money is yours. And I actually, that struck me when you said it uh, several times. 
And I think bringing that clarity to, to the individual, making them happen that this is important and showing them the power, as you have said uh, in the previous uh, engagement I have with you, showing them how to keep it together, it will grow faster. That can happen by bringing those people independently to manage the organizations for them. Thank you so much, Mr. Mara. I truly appreciate your kindness in joining me in this call. I am, I, I would have to say I'm beyond mesmerized by, by the family al Sarkal and their history and their current uh, activities and their future visions. And I really uh, respect uh, their futuristic uh, look into, into governance and how are they uh, evolving this, uh, the, the governance structures to accommodate expertise uh, that hopefully would help the family grow more exponentially into the future, uh, bearing in mind the, the huge changes that, uh, that, uh, that the overall global economy is facing. Thank you very much. I truly appreciate your time here. And I hope to see you very soon in person. Sure, sure. Thank you very much. So kind of you to invite me over as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.